Money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success, others use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it, and how to grow it. This is Tilly Money. Our guest today is Gemma Dale, Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour at NABTRADE. Before her current role, Gemma was Head of SMSF Solutions at NAB, Head of Technical Services at MLC, Senior Technical Manager at Asgard Wealth Solutions, and Head of Technical Services at Suncor. Gemma is the host of the Your Wealth Podcast, a weekly podcast for investors featuring insights and updates from market and finance experts across a range of topics. She is a regular market and finance commentator on Your Money, Sky Business. She's featured on Sunrise, the AFR, ABC TV, other radio stations, Channel 10, and other media as well. Gemma is also a regular presenter at major industry events, including the ASX Investor and Advisor Days and Kanga Conference. Gemma, welcome to Tilly Money Podcast. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, good. It's great to have you in these strange times. Let's date. <laughs> we all know we're going through strange times at the moment in these lockdowns, but it's given us a great opportunity to talk to you, Gemma, because I know you've got a wealth of expertise. And one of them, you might be able to fill us in here, because I believe from research that NAB Trade has released, it was a couple of years ago, I think back in 2017, but it showed the differences in the way men and women invest in Australia. Can you throw some light on that for us? Yes, of course. Uh, Look, yes, the research that was published is a couple of years old, or it's probably four years old now, but it's not, uh, nothing's changed a great deal since it was published. We look at it every year, that data, and it's it's pretty consistent. Mm. So the most obvious uh, things that come out when you talk about gender and investing are that blokes, particularly young guys, are Mm -hmm. far more aggressive and much more likely to take risk than young women and particularly older women. So women tend to be a little bit more conservative and young men seem to be the highest risk takers in our society, which is true across all aspects of society, right? True for driving and many, many other things. Uh, And it's very typical of their behaviour in the market. Mm. I think what is most interesting about it is they're far more likely to take risk. And by that, I mean they're far more likely to trade rather than invest. They're far more likely to buy speculative stocks, so smaller companies, companies without consistent earnings, uh, companies with uh, potentially great upside but lots of downside as well. They might go to zero because it's all based on an idea that may or may not have come to fruition yet. And so we see with young guys in particular, this sort of fairly aggressive trading behaviour, it does tend to moderate over time. So as guys get older, they tend to learn from their mistakes a little bit. Mm. Sometimes they'll be brilliant traders, right? And they'll stay with that. Mm. But in many cases they go, I just lost 70% on one trade and I don't want to do that again. And so I'm going to be a little bit more conservative. I'm going to learn from my experiences and I'm going to build something a bit more 
middle ground, a bit more sensible over time. Mm-hmm. Whereas with women, they tend to start with the middle ground and being a bit more sensible, much less likely to take that risky behaviour to start with. The only problem is they start later, mm-hmm. quite a bit later consistently than guys. Uh, and they obviously have less to invest. Women earn less. Uh, they earn less over their lifetimes and more likely to have career breaks and so on. So uh, I wish I had a more positive story about women investing. The positive bit is they tend to be much better investors, particularly when they start, because mm. they make fewer stupid decisions and yes. uh, and uh, and they take less risk and so they don't blow themselves up as often. Mm. The bad news is they start later and they have less to start with and so they have less opportunity to build wealth over time, which is not fantastic. We'd love to see that change. No, it's interesting, isn't it? So they don't blow themselves up, which is a good thing, but because of maybe a maybe a natural um, predilection to being risk averse, they're not making the returns that men who don't blow themselves up, you know, and are more cautious, take more risk, could have better returns. I'm going to ask you a question that probably wasn't in the NAB trade research, but what's your take on women being risk averse? Have you, have you got a thing on that? Why don't women like risks? Why, why don't we take risks generally? Some do. Uh, so there's actually a piece of research about this uh, that's entitled Boys to be Boys. Boys will be boys. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, something like the problem with overconfidence. And mm-hmm. rather than talking about women, why women don't take risks, it's more why blokes do, do, particularly young guys. There's this issue with overconfidence with young men that they're very confident they're going to beat the market. They're mm-hmm. also very confident that they're better than the average driver. They're confident that they're better at everything than the data would suggest they are. And so one of the reasons that young men are very confident getting into the market is that there's real belief in their own ability that may or may not be based in reality, whereas women tend to have a far more realistic understanding of their own knowledge and experience. They appreciate that the market is risky and that you may lose money and they don't believe that they necessarily have any unique skills and abilities that are going to help them outperform all the time. So the upshot of that, the one thing I'm really pleased about is the advent of ETFs and uh, very, I'm going to say simple products, and I understand they're not simple if you don't know what they are and when you come to them for the first time, you're like, what the hell is this thing? But a product that allows you to take out some of the anxiety about choosing stocks, you can just by the share market and in inverted commas has made it much easier for women because we don't believe in general that we're smarter than everybody else. We get concerned that we don't have the knowledge and experience, which may well be true, right? No one comes to the market a genius investor. I always find it really interesting that people come to the market at 19 or 20 and think they're going to be brilliant. You think, well, you have no years of investing experience and, you know, no years of experience analysing companies and so on. So, you know, you're going to make mistakes when you start. For women who are concerned about making those mistakes, there are nice, simple ways to get started now, which is really wonderful. That wasn't true 20 years ago when I first started, and so I had to just make mistakes, whereas now it's a little bit more straightforward. You can kind of strip out some of that risk and find more practical ways to invest without um that being fearful that you don't have this sort of unique and brilliant ability to pick the uh, the stock that's going to outperform. Mm. You mentioned there, and you, you did, you know, you talked about these more simple products that are out there, and you mentioned ETFs. 
just mm. take us through because we've kind of promised you know our followers on Tilly that we wouldn't let any words escape you know that without explaining us take it take us through a little bit more about those ETFs that you mentioned you did explain it but let's just hone back on an ETF for a while Gemma yeah thank you thank you thank you I worked in the most complex part of uh, sort of financial advice for a long time it's so easy to slip into your acronyms and start talking gibberish right uh so an ETF is an exchange traded fund and they started and the flagship products are still this kind of thing where they allow you to buy a basket of stocks, a basket of companies that is just say tracking an index. It effectively gives you access to the top 50 companies or the top 200 companies or whatever that benchmark is. So, uh, the flagship product in Australia is the ASX 200. So the Australian Securities Exchange, that's the main Australian share market, pretty much the only one you're ever going to worry about. And the top 200 companies on that exchange, which is CBA, BHP, NAB, uh, Afterpay, if you're interested in it for a little bit longer, uh, all those sorts of companies. And they're weighted by size, which means the biggest ones have a bigger part of the index and the tiny little ones at around the 200 mark are much smaller. Yep. So they're not 0.5%, they're much less than that. And what that will do, so when you turn on the news at night, if anybody does that anymore and you see uh, someone saying, you know, the ASX 200 was up 1% today, that means the ETF that you bought is up 1% less a tiny little bit of fees. You don't have to worry about what any of the individual companies did within that basket. You just get the overall average performance of all of those companies. And that can be quite a nice thing because if you bought something that's rubbish, it's probably doing really well uh, overall because many other things will be doing well. So one company might have blown up, but lots of others will be doing well and you get an average performance over time. So you would imagine... Gemma, if say you bought an ETF that tracked the ASX 200, so it's looking at the top 200 companies, and you said a few of them, you know, the big yep. banks, then you would have, you know, Macquarie Bank, you'd have mm -hmm. Afterpay, as you said, you'd have Commonwealth Serum Laboratories or CSL. So yeah. you could be a reasonably good company to get into this top 200 company list. Probably the most important thing is with there will be some exceptions. Most of them are proven companies. Yep. So they are, they have earnings, they have been around for a while. Now, Afterpay is an interesting example because it doesn't make a profit yet, but it's about to get taken out by a big American companies. So you won't be worrying about that too much. Yep. Um, but you you get companies that are proven, they've been around for quite a while, they make profits usually, uh, they pay dividends, which is really nice. So you get some income from it. So you get this broad-based exposure to largely the Australian economy. Mm. So you get this performance of the Australian economy and you don't have to buy just the ASX 200. A lot of our investors will also buy the S&P 500. That is the top 500 companies in the US. Okay. And that one's really interesting because then you get Microsoft and Amazon and Google and all the big names that you probably use every day, your Apples and so on. And you get access to 500 of them and all of their performance and so on as well. So it makes it really easy to get a very broad range of companies and benefit from their long-term performance without having to make any difficult decisions yourself. Okay, so, so you're saying that if someone's starting out, 
or someone is already an investor, but they just don't like too much risk and they don't know, for example, whether they should buy Commonwealth Bank or should they buy NAB or should they buy BHP or Rio or or Afterpay, you know, a bit risky. Okay, we know Afterpay is not going to be there, but, you know, I'm talking, say, a week ago. Um, Yeah. It might be someone who's really risk averse but likes the idea of having exposure to a broad risk, broad group of companies. That could be a good way for someone to invest, particularly for a new investor who is learning potentially. Yeah, I think so very much. One of the key principles of investing is diversification. Huh? The don't put all your eggs in one basket principle. So you know if you pick one stock and that stock goes down, you've lost money. If you buy 200 stocks, sometimes the overall share market loses a lot of money, right? It does happen. Uh, It happens in cycles. Last year, the overall share market lost 30%, but it's back above that level again now, which is kind of extraordinary after 12 months. Mm. So buying the broader index you are much less likely to be dramatically underwater because you chose the wrong thing. I think it's less sometimes for people about diversification, more because they don't know what to choose. So we know from our research, the number one issue that people find with investing is what do I buy? Mm -hmm. And if that is a question you don't know how to answer, but you do want to invest, It's a really nice, simple solution. They're also not very expensive now, which is really important because fees do eat away at your returns. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, 15 years ago, you'd be paying about 1% for something like this in a managed fund. Now you can buy them on the stock exchange. You can sell them and get your money back within two days, uh, which is very important if you need the money. And we certainly know people have been in difficult situations over the last 18 months. and you're paying sort of 10 basis, 0.1 of a percent in fees every year, which is not very much at all compared to what you used to pay. So they're a great simple solution if you find the stock picking part difficult. Now, I will say some people love stock picking. They love it and they love doing the research and they love thinking about what's going to outperform and they're very attached to some companies and not others. We found with research, uh, as I said, into the gender stuff, women are much more likely to have an ethical bent in how they invest and take that seriously. Uh, We found with men they were a little bit more preoccupied with return than they were with any kind of ethical overlay, whereas women were like... Does that mean men might say hold stocks in companies that might invest in coal where a woman might, might be might be more coal averse or women may not really want to get into stocks that are gambling whereas some men might not be that's is that what you're saying in terms of a bit more of a, an environment bend or a, a, a social bend of some reason hmm. yeah 100 percent. ethical is a it's a fraught term it's quite complex to uh, unpick what it means for different groups of people uh, so often you'll see ethical funds uh And it may not be your definition of ethical, which is quite tricky, but don't let it put you off if it's important. I always use my parents as an example, and if they ever listen to anything I do, they'll kill me. But I think they're a great example in that they've always had an ethical overlay for what they invest in. They will not buy gambling-related stocks. Uh, My mother in particular feels very strongly that that is 
socially problematic, even though my dad owned part of a racehorse for a while. <laughs> so they're not anti-gambling, but they don't <laughs> think that it's a uh, an ethical way to make money. They have to lose a bit, but they occasionally uh, Melbourne Cup and so on. Um, and, and certain types of mining and so on, they would also not want to partake in. Uh, coal is a really good example where they feel that the climate change impacts are not something that they want to be involved in. But they're quite happy to own alcohol-related stocks because they both enjoy wine and they, they're fine with it. So that's that's their ethical overlay. Your, yours might be different. Every person's will be different, really. However, we have found that women have a much stronger preference to put their personal values at the forefront when they invest if you buy a standard ETF, there is no ethical overlay on that. You will get everything in the index, regardless of what it's invested in. Um, however, you can choose ethical ETFs and you can choose other types of ethical products, or you can choose your own companies based on what suits your personal values and your ethics. So it's interesting how people approach that and, um, and what they see as being most important. Is there an also, too, something where... I buy this a um, this ETF that's exposed to, you know, the two hundred top Australian shares, but I'm not really sure at this stage what the returns are or what the companies are like, or I haven't don't know where to read. So, is that part of the safer thing too? Because behind that there are analysts and researchers looking at these companies to see how, say. The big four banks are performing or you know how the miners are going or so is someone else kind of doing the legwork and looking more inside the company to check its performance or so for an asx 200 etf it's what's called passive yep which means the numbers go into a computer based on the size of the company literally the size mm-hmm. and you get the performance calculated by a computer I'm sure it's something a little bit more sophisticated than just a computer, but uh, <laughs> you, get, you get that performance and that's what you get. So there's no analyst in the background doing work for you to okay. determine whether or not that company is worth investing in. It's just uh, CBA is the largest company in Australia right now, so you're getting 4% of your ETF in CBA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore 4% of the performance of your fund is coming from CBA. If you are interested in having someone do some actual analysis of the underlying company and determine whether or not there's value, there's a million different ways you can do that. So uh, we have your research from Switzer on the NavTrade platform and we have a heap of research, right? If you want to look into actual research done by analysts to determine the value of particular companies, whether or not they are uh producing goods and services that you think are worthwhile, whether they're profitable or not, whether you think that profit's sustainable, all those sorts of important questions when you're investing in something. There's a lot of different ways to access research. Mm. We have a heap of it on our platform. And if you open an account, create an account, then you get access to all of that. But you can also go and pay a professional fund manager, uh, which sounds complicated, but you literally buy a product on the share market and that product may be actively managed so they're called active ETFs uh, as opposed to passive ETFs and you would find they would have a name on them right so they'd be Magellan blah 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 or uh, Fidelity blah 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 and so they would be they would be a named product that would be managed by a bunch of professionals who've got heaps of experience in uh, researching analyzing and 
hopefully accurately predicting the value of companies into the future. So Gemma, does that mean that there's no variation in my investment with the passive ETF? My fee's pretty low on that as well. But yeah. if it's an active fund and I'm using expert analysis, they might, if they knew, for example, that one of the big four banks, you know, maybe was going to outperform or, you know, is just in fantastic shape for growth, they would change the investment allocation? Yeah, it's a really good question. So if you buy an actively managed fund on the market, and you can also buy ones that aren't, you don't buy them through the share market, you just put your money in it, um, invest in it. Uh, they're called managed funds generally. Uh, if you're in the US, they're called mutual funds, and they're just not on the share market, uh, but managed in exactly the same way. They will generally hold 40 to 60 stocks. Mm-hmm. When you buy the ASX 200, you're getting 200. When you buy the S&P 500, you're getting 500. So they're much higher conviction. They screen out a lot of stuff because they think it's no good. Mm-hmm. And they try to pick the best companies and put more money toward the best companies in their view and don't invest in the others. Otherwise, you would basically get the same return as the ASX 200. There's no point paying these people. Mm-hmm. But you pay a lot more for that, obviously, because all of those analysts need to get paid and there's work that goes into it. So your fees will be 1% or more versus 0.1% of a percent. With a passive Passive, you're saying 0.1, but this could be 1% plus for all the work that that fund manager is doing for you. Yeah, and it's worth noting there's no guarantee that just because they've done the work that they will get a better return. Uh, and it's it's a really difficult topic because I talk to a lot of fund managers in my job and a lot of them have incredible qualifications and they're very professional and they work extremely hard, but the market is very hard to predict, right? The data tells us that most people do not outperform the market after fees, the fees are material. So one of the reasons ETFs have become so popular is because generally it's very hard to pick a good fund manager, just as hard to pick a good fund manager as it is to pick a good stock. And so uh, a lot of people will choose not to go with a professional and others will choose to go with a professional because they believe that they will generate outperformance in inverted commas so they will give you a better return than the market you may have paid them one percent but they beat the market by two percent and therefore that was good that was money well spent uh but if they underperform then that cost you a fair bit right yeah yeah right interesting now let's let's put the market current market to one side for a moment let's talk a bit more about Gemma Dale and (laughs) when did you start getting interested in all this I mean I read out at the beginning in the intro you know you've had quite an amazing career, you know, around, you know, markets. But when did all this interest start? Uh, There's there's probably two different parts to it. So one uh, was the investing side and I was quite fortunate. My dad got into investing when I was a teenager Mm. and he had no idea what he was doing. He's a highly educated, quite brilliant man in his field, but that field has nothing to do with finance. And so he... And because he's highly educated, he chose to get educated about investing. Um, I think if the story goes, and I don't know terribly well, that he kind of went and bought some shares on the recommendation of a broker and they promptly lost money. He was furious about it. And then he decided he would get educated. Which happens to a lot of people, right? Uh, one bad experience and you decide to, uh, to learn more. So he uh, 
started reading a lot of books and did an investing course, you know, paper-based course back then, uh, learning about how to value companies and so on. There were no ETFs back when he started. And I was a teenager at the time uh, getting, I think I'd probably had my first job by then. And it was really helpful, I think, to see someone highly educated and professional, realise they didn't know anything about this and learn from scratch. Mm. Uh, it made me appreciate that I didn't need, I think if he'd just done it and been brilliant, I would have been like, oh, well, I don't have that skill. But because I saw him have to learn it, that was very helpful. Mm. Uh, so I did start buying some shares relatively young. I wasn't brilliant at it, obviously. Uh, and also back in the day when there were no ETFs and I had to kind of model my way through. The other thing is back then, um, you had to call up a stockbroker from the yellow pages, which is kind of incredible. And they didn't love hearing from an 18-year-old girl. They thought I was ridiculous and I think palmed me off to the copy boy, you know, <laughs> like the worst client ever. Um, and also there was very little information. You couldn't uh, go online and look up stock research for free or anything like that. Like I didn't know what the value of my shares were until the next day when I read them in the paper. So that was kind of crazy. So that was the investing side. On the professional side, I, um, I, I did a couple of degrees in my undergrad Went overseas, had a great time, came back, and didn't really know what I wanted to do professionally. But one of the things that I thought sounded interesting out of a list of like 20 things was financial planning. Mm. And I really liked the idea of understanding how to uh, build uh, financial security, I guess. And so I got a graduate program in financial planning, of all things, mm. Uh by virtue of sending out my CV to about 400 people <laughs> and um, and so started down that path and ended up working in sort of specialist superannuation, self-managed super fund type areas, uh, which was extremely helpful. Nothing to do with markets, really. That's the structuring and the tax side, uh, which I found really interesting. But the two together was an interesting combo. Oh, yeah. Do you remember what your first stock was that you bought? Yeah, it was NAB. <laughs> so that's very easy to remember. I ended up working there many years later. And when did you start? Was it, did you teach yourself then about when should I, you know, sell this or should I buy more or, you know, what, where did that knowledge come from? It took a really long time, I think, to unlearn some of the common wisdom because when I first started the logic was very much buy bank shares in the 90s it was very big to buy bank shares and then just hang on to them for a really long time you'll make a heap of money yeah. so there was that um and this is back when banks were buying wealth management companies and expanding overseas and sort of seemed to be a guaranteed way to make a lot of money uh so I, I have a very strong buy and hold bias mm -hmm. because that was how it was done when I first started. I subsequently worked in a broking firm, but it was with a lot of young men who used to trade very actively. And it never seemed apparent to me that they were actually that good at it. <laughs> like, it was quite weird to watch them trading away. Well, a lot and of them probably testosterone driven. And very much so. And also, the, you know, they're all in the same office together and a lot of drinking and all this kind of business. And it just seemed uh, kind of a social activity rather than a particularly good one professionally. Always remember one of the guys whose father owned, the, owned part of the firm, which was very common, uh, mm -hmm. 
made the point that his father had made a lot more money out of property than out of shares, which I thought was fascinating given that he owned part of a stockbroking firm, right? Yes, yeah. Yeah, amazing. So you built up knowledge, very much what you're saying, you built up knowledge and then this was the days before, as you said before, before ETFs. Sounds like originally it was the days before ComSec and NABTRADE when you started. Uh, It was very, ComSec was just starting Mm -hmm. and uh, Paul will be able to tell you more about this, (laughs) but, um, you know, it was, it was sort of touted as a, an online trading platform, but in the back end, it was um, very manual. And so n- nothing like it is now, right? Things have changed a lot. It used to be, and I'll just say for anyone who doesn't know, Paul Rickard is um, is one of my business partners, and he was the person who, with a great team, kicked off ComSec. And in those days, it was done by faxes, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it was very manual and I remember working in a broking firm where they'd be like well, why are all these trades coming into the market all in one lump and it would have been because they processed all the taxes all the taxes were done yes exactly <laughs> so you know you've been building up knowledge for a long time if you had to go back Gemma and you know you're in a situation now where you've had in um, or continue to have a fantastic career you know you sound like your knowledge is exponential you know and continues to grow what would you say to that young Gemma who bought that NAB trade, or not NAB trade, sorry, NAB share, um, you know, way back then? I think stick at it is probably the most important thing. There were periods in my life where investing was important, but I was very focused on buying a house. Actually, that was far more important to me than investing in the share market for a long time. And so I would save in cash for years to be able to build up a deposit and all those sorts of things. Uh, And it's hard for young people to appreciate this, but there are very lengthy periods where the share market does nothing. Mm. It goes sideways like five years at a time. And so it felt like investing in shares is a bit of a waste of time. Um, Or you have a couple of bad experiences. So you put it to the side and even though that that never hurt me in any way, like I've always been very fortunate um, to be on the right side of timing. Mm. It's because I bought a house just before the GFC, so I sold some shares out of, to buy the house, um, which was very helpful because then I lose all my money in the GFC. Mm. Um, I think stick with it is always the best advice, right? Mm. And I would give it to anyone else, not just myself. Mm. It's, it's very good advice because that really goes to the idea that those who have made money out of the share market, it's about long-term investing. Mm. So stick with it means you're an investor for the long-term. And that's easier to be made, yeah. Would you agree? You agree. You said yes, so you would agree, yeah. Oh, I just, markets work in cycles, right? And there will be periods where you do incredibly well through no particular brilliance of your own and periods where you do really badly through no particular stupidity. And every now and then it will be your stupidity or it will be your brilliance, but most of the time you have to accept that the market is a little bit outside your control. I did an economics degree uh, and then I did honours in business and I worked with some incredibly brilliant people and none of them could have predicted where we are now with zero interest rates and all these things, right? It's a very unusual period in history. So you need to accept that there will be very unusual periods in history, right? You can't predict them all and things will happen that are outside your control. But if you are in it for decades, you will do well. 
Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Well, we might wind up on that note for today, but I would love you to come back um, because I felt that the way you've explained ETFs, um, for anybody that really wants to understand the share market generally and the way to get into it and to understand an ETF, that's been a great explanation on your part, Gemma. So I thank you for that. And if time allows, we'd love to ask you back and help us grow our knowledge. Even when it comes down, you said an interesting point about that father of who started some kind of stockbroking firm said, <laughs> yeah. and said, you know, I've made my dad's made more money out of property. Really love to talk to you about what's best. Do I buy shares or do I buy property? And that in itself, if you've got time to come back, could be a great topic for people. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Would love to. Terrific. Great talking to you today, Gemma. And uh, in this crazy world, stay safe. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Your host this week was Maureen Jordan. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. To keep up to date with all of our content, follow us on Instagram at tilly.money. Thanks to Ixon for our intro music.